Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast to talk about book two, chapter 18 of War and Peace. We've got uh, the tennis on in the background, young Aussie player D. Menor, Alex D. Menor, who's uh, playing the Italian Fognini, and uh, it's a good game so far. It's great to watch this kid, Alex D. Menor. He's, um... <laughs> there's a moth on the claw that is the size of... They've just stopped play because it's a night game and a moth has landed on the court and it looks the size of a of a sparrow. <laughs> it's the biggest moth I've ever seen. It's flapping around like a bird. Um, anyway, that's what's happening in the background here. I love the Australian Open. I'm not really much of a sports guy. I'm sure that a lot of you people who've been listening to this for years would probably have picked that up by now, but there's one sport that I do love watching. It's tennis, it's the, especially the Australian Open which is um, played here in Melbourne. And I've never really watched this kid, Demon Orr, play, but I think he's, he looks like he's about 22 two or something. He looks young, and he's so quick on his feet. And his serve goes at 230 k's an hour. It's crazy. It's great to watch. Anyway, um, chapter two, oh, sorry, book two, chapter 18. And today's chapter, chapter 19, is, as promised, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book, maybe my favorite chapter. I'm very excited to read it to you. What is your impression of the battle thus far? Do you think it is in line with the expectations of the characters from what we have read in the previous chapters? What do you think Andre felt... Oh, sorry, why do you think Andre felt the way he did following Bagration? Why do you think he was experiencing great happiness? Gen0889 said, In regards to Prince Andre finding joy following Bagration... I wonder if this was done by Tolstoy to mirror the French army and their support of Napoleon. If you have a dynamic leader, it can make all the difference. His soldiers followed Bagration's marching orders and wanted to please him. It makes me think about the cult of personality when it comes to leadership, both in the past and in our current life. Electric Taters said, Andre has witnessed a lot, but he hasn't gotten into the thick of it. He returned to save the army. What does, that, what does he expect to do? I don't think Mr. Prancy Marcher isn't going to prance away from this one. Andrew's constant disdain is aimed at people who sit around pontificating and vying for status. Bagration is someone who directs and does. He's willing to ride down and to inspect his troops. He stands resolute in potential danger. He's a stand-in figure to Andre's father who inspires respect mixed with fear from people by his thorough attention and vigilance. Watching people march by and saying good job isn't incredibly meaningful, but Bagration knows his purpose at the moment. From Andrew's perspective, he's seeing someone who is real. Very cool. Good, very cool. Prince Kane says, Andre sees Bagration as a way to get the glory he wants. It's an interesting take, and I think I think you might be on the money. He, his, the joy that he's experiencing is the joy that he's finally approaching this sense of meaning he's been searching for in his life. He feels like he's wasting his life. You know, his whole society life is just a waste of his potential. And I think now, with the war starting, he's thinking, oh, I'm under this great leader, Bagration, and here's my chance to do something meaningful. Um, The Real Locuro says, It sounds like a moment of glory. Bagration yells, God be with us. And you and your comrades are charging together at the enemy. 
War is horrific, but I think anybody would enjoy a battle charge. <laughs> I think I'd be terrified, but I, th I see your point. You'd definitely be hyped. All right, I think let's just go ahead and read chapter 19. What do you guys think? First of all, patreon.com slash the Hemingway list if you want to support the making of this podcast and my translating of these chapters into uh, Aussie. Um, book two's finished. I need to package it up and make it an ebook for you guys. If anyone wants to purchase it, it will be available available for purchase in the coming days. Uh, and I've made a start on book three, uh, which is exciting. Uh, there's some interesting thing happening at the start of book three too, which I can't wait to share with you guys. Not long now anyway, it's only a few days. Um, the last few chapters of book two and the la and the opening chapters of book one are really long. They're just long-ass chapters. And so it's taken me a few days per chapter to get them. Not to mention also that I've, you know, I had limited time to work on it. But um, the, the, the fact that they're long, long chapters hasn't helped at all. And so at this, at this rate, you know, my idea was to do a chapter per day. But I'm just not finding that I've got the, the time to do it. I'm working on it every single day, for hours every single day. But it's just not enough to get through a chapter every day. So I'll see. I'll try my hardest to keep ahead for you guys. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to swap in every now and then a few moored chapters um, while I sort of move ahead and write the next ones. And we'll probably end up having a bit of a mixture of moored and Andrew Lewis chapters in the coming, well, for the rest of the book unless I can really knuckle down and bust out a few chapters per day, but it's just very difficult to get that done. All right. <clears throat> Chapter 19 goes like this. With the help of the six chasseurs, our right flank was able to retreat. Everyone had pretty much forgotten about Tushin's battery, including Tushin himself, but they were putting in some work and had managed to set fire to the Shon Graburn village, delaying the advancing French. The wind was rapidly spreading the fire in the village, and the French were trying to put it out, which brought us precious time to retreat. It was a pretty sketchy retreat, noisy and rushed, but the centre line managed to get back across the ravine, and better yet, the men stayed in their own detachments and didn't get muddled up. The left flank, however, wasn't looking so good. It consisted of the Azovsky and Podolsky infantry regiments and the Pavlograd Hussar regiment, who were currently all over the shop and being attacked and encircled by superior French forces commanded by Lanes. Bagration could see the trouble they were in and sent Zerkov to deliver a message to the commander of the left flank that they must retreat immediately. Zerkov gave such an enthusiastic salute that his hand was still on his cap as he turned his horse and galloped off. But as soon as he left Bagration, he realised that he was a wimpy little sook. He was struck by terror, like a little biatch, and simply could not bring himself to go where the danger was. He took himself to the left flank, but not to the front of it where he was supposed to go. That was the best he could do. He was supposed to go to where the firing was, but nah, fuck that. He started looking for the general and his officers, knowing full well that they couldn't possibly be where he was, and therefore he never delivered the order to retreat. 
At the top of its chain of command, the left flank belonged to the commander of the regiment that Big Dog Kutuzov had inspected in Brunel, the one in which Dolokhov served as a private. <clears throat> but the extreme left flank, that was another story. Its leadership was assigned to the commander of the Pavlograd regiment, the one in which young Rostov was serving. And here is where things got confused. These two commanders were really fucked off with each other. And well after the action had started and the French had begun attacking the right flank and getting nearer, these dickheads were locked in a discussion with their only aim being to offend one another. The regiments, both cavalry and foot soldiers, were by no means ready for the fight that was coming. From private to general, they weren't expecting a battle and were basically just chillaxing. The cavalry were feeding the horses and the infantry collecting wood. If his is higher than I is in rank said the German colonel of the Hussars, going all red as he spoke to the adjutant who had ridden up. So let him do what he will, but I will not sacrifice my Hussars. Bugle player, sound the retreat. But it was becoming increasingly important that they hurry the fuck up. Cannons and muskets thundered on the right, and in the centre their sounds mingling together, while the hooded capotes of Lane's sharp shooters were already visible, crossing the stream over the mill dam and forming up at about double the range of a musket shot. The infantry general, who walked all bouncy-like, went over to a horse, hopped on it, and sat up very, very straight, drawing himself up as tall as he could, and rode to the Pavlograd commander. They met and bowed politely, but secretly in their hearts hated each other's guts. "'Again, Colonel,' said the general, "'I simply cannot leave half my men in the woods. "'I am begging you, begging you,' he repeated, "'to take up your position and prepare for an attack. "'I beg of yourself to keep your nose out of what is none of your beeswax,' "'replied the colonel, suddenly arcing up. "'If you were in the cavalry,' I'm not in the cavalry, Colonel, because I am a Russian general, and if you somehow didn't know that much... I do know that much, Your Excellency, shouted the Colonel, starting his horse and going very purple in the face. Why don't you come to the front and see that this position is not any the goods? It is very, uh, how you say, fuck upad. I don't want to destroy my men for your pleasure. Easy there, Colonel, watch what you're saying. I am sure as shit not doing any of this for my own pleasure, and if you say that again, I'll bloody thump you, said the general. And taking the colonel's little outburst as an invitation for a pissing contest, he frowned and puffed up his chest, and together they rode to the front lines as if there, among the flying bullets, they would settle their differences. They reached the front line, bullets whizzed over their heads, and they stopped in silence. There was nothing new to be seen from here because they could already see from where they were previously that the cavalry would have a fucked time trying to move and fight among the bushes and the uneven ground of the ravines, and that the French were outflanking our left. The general and the colonel looked severely at one another, like two big cocks preparing for a big cockfight, each one vainly scrutinising the other for signs of cowardice. Both passed this examination with flying colours. There was nothing to be said, and neither of them wanted the other to be able to accuse him of leaving the range of fire first, and therefore they would have remained there in this stalemate a long time, testing each other's courage, if they hadn't just then heard the crackle of musketry and a muffled shout from right behind them in the woods. The French had attacked the men collecting wood in the copse of trees. 
Retreating with the infantry was no longer an option for the hussars. They had been cut off from the path of retreat to the left by the French. Now they had to attack, no matter how difficult the terrain was, in order to cut their way out. Young Rostov's squadron had barely had time to mount before it was halting, halted facing the enemy. Young Rostov. Sorry, I'm going to read that again because I messed it up. Young Rostov's squadron had barely had time to mount before it was halted facing the enemy. Again, just as it had happened at the end's bridge, there was no one between Rostov's squadron and the enemy. And again, that gut-wrenching line, the line of uncertainty and terror, the line between life and death, lay between them. Everyone could sense this invisible line and the question of whether or not they might cross it and how they might cross it played on all their minds. The colonel rode to the front, angrily fielded the questions that the officers had for him, and desperately trying to insist he was in charge gave an order. The rumour of an attack spread through the squadron, though in vague and uncertain terms the command to form up for battle rang out and the sabres swinged as they were drawn from their sheaths. Still no one moved. The troops of the left flank, both infantry and hussars alike, could sense that the commander had no fucking clue what they should do, and his indecisiveness became increasingly apparent to them. Come on, let's go already, thought young Rostov, stoked that the time had finally come to experience the thrill of battle which he'd heard about so often from his hussar comrades. Godspeed, lads, rang out Denisov's voice. At a twat march! and horses began to sway their hips in the front line, Rook pulled at the reins and started by his own will. Rostov could see ahead of him, to the right, the front lines of his hussars, and beyond that a vague dark line which he could only assume was the enemy. Shots were fired, but some way off. Faster, came the word of command, and Rostov felt little Rook's flank, flanks drop as he broke into a gallop. Rostov was now sensing what the horse would do ahead of time and became and sorry and his shit-eating grin grew larger and larger he noticed a solitary tree ahead of him and remembered how that tree had been right on that terrible invisible line he had feared so much and now he had passed it passed the line and not only was it not terrible but it was actually fucking awesome oh I'm going to slash these pricks to pieces, thought Rostov, gripping the hilt of his sabre. Hurrah, ah, ah, came a roar of voice. I'll take on anyone who comes my way, thought Rostov, spurring little Rook on to his full speed gallop and outstripping the others. The enemy ahead was clearly visible now. Suddenly, something swept over the squadron like a giant invisible broom. Rostov raised his sabre in the air, ready to strike, but at that instant he was overtaken by Nikitenko, who seemed to be travelling at an impossible speed, and Rostov felt the surreal sensation that he was both travelling at full speed and simultaneously staying in place. Another hussar he knew, named Bod- Bondarchuk, nearly crashed into him from behind. His horse shied, swerved, Bondarchuk gave an angry look and then sped past. What the fuck, why have I stopped? Oh shit, I've fallen, I've been killed! Rostov asked and answered at the same time. He suddenly found himself alone in the middle of a field. Instead of the backs of the hussars streaming forth on their horses, he saw nothing ahead but the still earth and the grass, grasses around him. There was warm blood under his arm. Fuck, I'm wounded, and my horse is dead. 
Rook wasn't quite dead, though. He tried now to get up onto his forelegs, but crumpled immediately back down onto Rostov's leg, pinning him down. Blood was flowing from Rook's head. He struggled again to get up, but couldn't manage it. Rostov tried to get up too, but was whipped back down. His pouch was caught in the saddle. He wondered where his comrades were, and where the French were, for that matter. The entire area was deserted. He unpinned his leg and drew himself up. Where the bloody hell is that line that separated the two armies? Which side of it am I on? He asked himself, and could not answer. Is it possible that something bad has happened to me? I guess that is a thing that can happen, but what are you supposed to do when that happens? He wondered, as he got back on his feet, and at that moment he felt that something useless was dangling from the end of his numbed left arm. The wrist felt like a foreign object attached to him. He examined his hand carefully, vainly searching for traces of blood on it. Oh, look, here comes some people, he thought happily, seeing some men sprinting towards him. They'll help me out. In front was a man wearing a strange shako and a blue cloak. He was darkly tanned and had a hooked nose. Two more men were right behind him and many more running behind them. One of them said something weird. It wasn't Russian. Right at the back of the pack was a man wearing the same Russian hussar uniform as Rostov. He was being frog-marched by the arm, and his horse was being led behind him. Oh, that's one of ours. But he's a prisoner. Yeah, maybe they'll make me a prisoner too. Wait, who are these men? thought Rostov, hardly believing his eyes. <clears throat> they can't be the French, can they? He looked at the approaching men, who were very much French, and though mere moments ago, for Rostov at least, he had been charging forward to slash them to pieces, their closest to him now seemed so awful that he couldn't fathom what he was seeing. Who are these guys? And why are they running? They can't be running at me, can they? Why would they be? To kill me? But I'm me. I'm brilliant. Everyone loves me. He remembered his mother's love for him and his families and his friends, and the enemy's intention to kill him seemed ridiculous. Oh, but I guess it is possible, he pondered, and for more than ten seconds he just stood there like a stunned mullet, not moving at all and really failing to comprehend the situation. The Frenchman in the lead, the one with the hooked nose, was already so close that Rostov could see his facial expression, and it was a strange and intense face that the man wore, holding his breath while he ran, so light on his feet, his bayonet hanging low, and it scared the living fucklights out of Rostov. He grabbed his pistol, and then, instead of shooting it at the Frenchman, he piffed it at him, and then he legged it at full speed towards the bushes. There was no hesitation and doubt. There was no hesitation or doubt in his run now, like there had been when he was on the end's bridge. Instead, he felt like a hare fanging it from a pack of hounds. He was possessed entirely now by one sentiment only, that his young and happy life was going to end. He really fanged it, hard, leaping over the furrows of the field and moving across it with the unthinking agility he used to show playing Tiggy, now and then turning his pale, good-natured young face to sneak a look behind. A bolt of terror gripped him. No, don't look back, he thought. But as he reached the bushes, he took another quick look back. He'd put some distance between himself and the French, and just as he looked round, the first man slowed down to a walk, turned, and shouted something loudly to a comrade, further back. Rostov paused. No way, there must be some mistake, he thought. There's no way they wanted to kill me. While he stood there watching the Frenchman, his left arm started to feel like it had a 70-pound weight hanging off it. He was knackered, he couldn't run any further. The Frenchman stopped too and took aim. 
Rostov closed his eyes and dropped down. One bullet and then another whistled past him. He mustered the very last of his strength and, carrying his left arm with his right, sprinted into the bushes. Behind the bushes were some Russian sharpshooters. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. A hell of a chapter. Young Rostov. Unable to believe that the enemy would want to kill him. Why would you want to kill me? I'm awesome. Why would you want to do that? I love that bit. All right, have your say about that over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.